welcome to As It Comes, life from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and it was recently Mother's Day in many parts of the world. Did you know Mother's Day has its origins in pacifist and women's suffrage movements in the United States? A peace activist named Ann Jarvis had seen the brutality of war up close as she cared for wounded soldiers during the American Civil War. She and another activist, Julia Ward Howe, came up with the Mother's Day Proclamation, an appeal to womanhood around the world to encourage women to influence their societies at a political level. They were unsuccessful in introducing their Mother's Day for peace, but their actions laid the groundwork for the next generation. Anne Jarvis's daughter, Anna, campaigned to have Mother's Day recognised as a national holiday. Inspired by the actions of her mother, she wanted a day to commemorate and celebrate mothers, the person who has done more for you than anyone else in the world. Following the initial denial from the US Congress in 1908, she was successful by 1914, when President Woodrow Wilson officially made the second Sunday of May to be Mother's Day. Isn't that interesting? I like this story because it really illustrates the longevity of social change. Anna Jarvis's mission wouldn't have come to fruition had it not been for the hard work done by her mother and Julia Ward Howe in the previous generation. It just shows that it's all baby steps. We mustn't take for granted the hard-fought actions of those before us. Likewise, whatever we're doing now might be laying the foundation for something great to come in future generations. So I hope you managed to chat to your mums on Mother's Day and show your love. I have an 11-hour time difference with my mum. We chatted after her morning cup of tea during my evening, and it was just so lovely. Thanks for mumming, mum. Speaking of mums, my guest for this episode has been exploring her journey of motherhood through music. Dutch soprano Hannah Malkin had a chat with me a few weeks back. She's recently released an album called This Is Not A Lullaby and we spoke about her experiences of motherhood as a working musician, as well as what inspired her to become a performer. Have a listen to my chat with Hannah. So Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. So how's 2021 going for you? We're here talking in the spring of 2021. What's the state of restrictions like where you are at the moment? So I'm in uh, in Amsterdam in the Netherlands uh, and it's uh, yeah, it's not going great uh, in terms of restrictions right now. Yeah, we're in lockdown. We have a curfew, um, but it's 10 p.m. and I have a baby, so I'm not really going out past that time anyway. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the shops are all only open by appointment, except for supermarkets and drugstores. And uh, there are no concerts. Zoos are closed. Museums are closed. Basically anything that's fun is closed. Gyms also. Since recently, we've been able to go to the hairdresser, which is already a big win. Yeah, you're super lucky because I, I mean, <laughs> ha- hairdressers open here in London next week. Oh, and God. so my husband's looking super shaggy at the moment, and he's right. like, "I can't wait. I'm going to go straight to the barber." I've had to make an appointment with my hairdresser, but not until the 11th of May. <laughs> oh gosh, is that such yeah. a busy hairdresser that you've got? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, as you can see, I've got a lot of hair that I need to deal with. (laughs) Well, it looks pretty good from here. Oh, cheers. Yeah, just let the listeners (laughs) know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Got to make it visual, right? 
And so what have you been doing to keep you busy during this time? I mean, I know that you're a mother and we'll talk about that shortly, but, you know, what have you been doing to keep busy during the pandemic? Uh, Well, what I've been very lucky to be able to do is uh, record an album. Uh, I recorded in December and it's going to come out in May. So I've been quite busy with, uh, we've been editing and mastering now, the physical CD is almost ready and I've been kind of doing things to promote it and doing some interviews and writing articles and all that kind of stuff. So um, I've been yeah busy with that a lot and also just working on technique, kind of honing in on some skills that, you know, when you're really busy with performances, maybe there's no time to pay attention to like the, the more deeper technical stuff. And so lately I've been kind of trying to get back on the horse. How are you finding your practice sessions now? I mean, as, as well as having a baby, you know, factoring in working around that, but also in terms of the stuff that you're practicing and you mentioned practicing technique, you know, what sort of things are you working on? Well, I have to be honest, for the first, you know, a couple of months in the pandemic, I was really just not in the mood and I just couldn't be bothered to prepare things that I knew were probably going to be canceled anyway. Uh, So I took quite a long break. Well, over the summer, we had some concerts, so I was quite busy then. Now I'm working on some uh, Handel arias, hopefully in preparation of my show Handel Goes Tinder, which is going to happen at the end of May. And I'm also getting back to some basic bel canto exercises i'm doing lots of breath work i'm trying to work on you know mesa di voce just like growing doing crescendo and diminuendo and getting the legato really even and those kind of things which i'm actually really enjoying nerding out on yeah nerding out on totally that's the kind of practice that my teacher used to refer to as flossing your teeth sometimes like quite satisfying just to really go back to basics like because I'm a cellist and I sometimes find I can spend ages working on tone exercises just doing long notes and they do help because you know for the days that I do go back into the studio a lot of what we do in the session work is just playing long notes in a scale and then you feel like you are keeping in shape that way exactly and I think you know it kind of gets difficult to do that kind of stuff when you're really busy So now is a really good time to get back to basics with that. And it's kind of mindfulness exercise as well, because you really have to be in the moment. And if you're thinking about other things, then you just lost it. And then you don't even remember, like, how was that note? Was it good? Was it bad? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a really good way to kind of keep focused and stay in the moment, I think. Yeah, being really, really conscious about what you're doing and making sure that you're always assessing and evaluating. Exactly. But then also not in a kind of overly controlling way. That's something that for me, I think is the biggest challenge because you want to evaluate what you're doing to improve. But at the same time, you don't want to get like too caught up listening to what you're doing and getting like stuck in that. So I think for me, that's kind of my main challenge right now is to get that really intense technical practice without getting too caught up in it and listening too much to what I'm doing because when the I've already listened to it it's like too late to control what comes out so yeah yeah, that kind of balance between freedom and and being very conscious and keeping to a high standard exactly and so that way you're still able to look at the big picture when it comes in in terms of performance and we can use the tools of our technical practice for our artistry And it's just getting to that point where you have these tools, but you're not having to think about them when you do use them in performance. 
Exactly. Yeah. I think we, I mean, we've probably all seen people who've performed where you feel like, oh, they look a little bit like they're thinking about every single thing that they're doing. <laughs> yeah. You, it, want, it needs to look as if, uh, and yeah, you need to not think about it at all when you're performing. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. So it has to be organic. But yeah, that's so, so much easier said than done, isn't it? <laughs> right. And there's always a, a new level to be achieved. You know, I mean, of course, as a professional musician, we've done a lot of this work already, right? But then there's always more and there's always room for improvement. And we can always get better. That's why we keep doing what we do. We never reach <laughs> to that point where we think, right, so I've learned the cello now. I'm going to go on to the next <laughs> instrument. <laughs> yeah. No, the cello is going to keep me busy for the rest of my life. That's for sure. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So I'll just introduce you a little bit more for people who might not know who you are. So you're a soprano, as you've mentioned, and you also work in lots of different styles and also with multimedia. So tell me a little bit about your musical journey, how you went down this path. I was born into a family of classical musicians. Uh, my father was a violinist in the Concertgebouw Orchestra and eventually became a composer as well. Uh, and my mother is a pianist and she always had lots of students and she also taught my brother who seven years older than me and was always a really incredible pianist. Um, but personally, I was never really that interested in classical music as a child. I was more into drawing and writing stories and just doing dance shows in the living room to the Spice Girls, like oh we all gosh. did in the 90s before <laughs> there was TikTok videos to be made. So those were kind of my interests. But then I guess there were two really pivotal moments for me. And one was when I, I wrote a song when I was nine and I sent it into this composition competition. Uh, every year at the Concertgebouw, there's this big New Year's concert. So it's the main concert hall in Amsterdam and this is televised nationwide and it's really a big event uh, and they have this competition for young composers uh, and I sent my song in and they they picked it to be performed on January 1st 2000 so uh, I got to perform my song with this big big like orchestra type ensemble on tv and in front of two and a half thousand people and it was just the best moment of my life. I wasn't nervous. I just went on stage and I stood there. And then at some point I like raised my hand and like everyone started clapping. And it was just, yeah, it was the most amazing feeling. And that's kind of when I found my love for being on the stage. From then you were hooked. <laughs> I was hooked. Yeah, really. And and I, I kept on writing songs, just like singer songwriter type songs. Uh, and I also joined a children's choir, which was very high level, and we, we did a lot, lots of big classical pieces like Mahler Three and Britain's War Requiem. And eventually, when I was around sixteen, I wanted to take uh, singing lessons, so I went to Charlotte Margiono, who's a one of the Netherlands' most well-known sopranos, and I started studying with her to kind of just improve my technique. And then she told me about an audition for Barbarina in The Marriage of Figaro at the Dutch National Opera. And they were looking for someone who had a kind of unschooled voice. So a really young singer. And I just went there totally, you know, naive, just learned this little aria, just went there, sang it, like had a little chat with these conductor and the director not thinking that it was such a big deal uh, and then I won the audition and I went to, to do these shows and yeah I just got hooked on opera there was no going back from there oh wow yeah I can see how that would hook you completely and quite often that's how some of the best things happen just unknowingly going into it like yeah I'll just do that 
and then amazing things happen. Yeah. And then because you're not bothered by, you know, thinking, oh, what will they think of me? Or there's not anything really dependent on it. And then you just are so free and unencumbered by limiting thoughts or anything, just enjoying the experience. And that's really the most important thing. Yeah, it's just not having that baggage that we sometimes get as we get more experienced, you know, and also the bar raising because of higher expectations and it can be crippling sometimes. How do we as professionals continue to have that sort of initial love? How do we convey that? That's something that I've really had to find because, you know, as you say, when the standard raises, of course, when you're 16 and you're singing opera, like you're the best because there's no one else doing it or barely anyone else doing it so you know everyone thinks you're amazing and then you know you go to study and you kind of learn more detailed things and you realize that there are other people who are doing the same thing and then you're 22 and suddenly you're not like this this big young talent anymore but you're just one of so many people who are all really good yeah I've definitely found that I had to rediscover uh, my love for for the well I always had the love for the music and singing but to kind of find that freedom again and for me, it was really finding my authentic voice as an artist mm. and thinking, what do I want to express? And what can I add to the music world that is unique to me and that I can bring to this world and share with people? That's a really important point, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people coming out of certain institutions or at that really young age, you know, 16 to 22, there's that pressure to perhaps fulfill certain roles in classical music that they think that they should do. Like, I must learn this concerto, I must learn this repertoire. And that can get you up to a certain point, but then also thinking, how can I contribute individually? Yeah. Musically. So speaking of your musical contributions, and as we've mentioned several times before already, so you've become a mother. Congratulations. Um, So tell me about, you know, your album that you've got coming up, which you mentioned, This Is Not A Lullaby, how motherhood has influenced your creativity and also how how it's influenced you as a person and as a musician. Yeah, it's been a huge transformation, I have to say. I mean, uh, so I became a mother uh, just about two years ago. Uh, My son, son Ezra is turning two next week. I mean, I always wanted to become a mother, and I never doubted whether I wanted to have a, a child. I also kind of thought, you know, how is it going to impact my career, and is it going to be, you know, are my priorities going to change, and are people going to maybe take me less seriously even, or how am I going to balance, you know, my ambitions with, with having a child? And then when I became pregnant, I kind of felt like this trust that it was just meant to be. What it has taught me is really being able to let go and trust whatever comes along and trust in my intuition and that whatever happens kind of needs to happen. And another big thing is it has taught me that I can do a lot more than I thought. (laughs) So (laughs) because I have to say the first year of motherhood was really hard. I mean, my labor was really difficult and took forever and I had to really recover from that. And then 10 weeks after I went back to work, 
Uh, and I had a really busy summer with, with my show, Handle Goes Tinder, the multimedia opera. And it was a tour that was like years in the making and we self-produced it. We found money. We got our own bookings, like without an agent or anything. It was really a lot of work put into it. And I was really proud of, of being able to do 30 performances in, in big festivals all over the Netherlands. At the same time, you know, I had a three-month-old baby at home and I was full-time breastfeeding and I was not sleeping at night. And it was quite tough. And if someone would have told me, you know, beforehand, like you're going to have to do 30 shows, oftentimes two or three a day, and then be like pumping milk in the meantime, like between and going home to a baby who is waking up multiple times a night and just having this crazy combination of things going on, I would have thought, you know, this is impossible. I had my pre-performance routines and I had to be rested and blah, blah, blah. And then I discovered that actually I could do it. I could do it really well, even maybe better than I would have if I would have time to stress about all of the details and about whether the circumstances were perfect condition for performing or not. Yeah, I found this kind of freedom. It's sort of like you've been forced just to get on with it. Sorry if that sounds really, really flippant, but I, I don't know. No, but that's kids. exactly what it is. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you just have to do it. There's no choice. You're not going to like sit around and complain or worry. Even worrying, there's no time for that. And you're also too tired to worry about things. Yeah. So some things just fall by the wayside and you just got to do it. It's a little bit like, I suppose it's like quite often you do amaze yourself when you realize what you're capable of if you have more engagements, when you're more busy because you yeah. have absolutely no choice. You've got these tiny windows of time where you need to fit everything in, you know. Exactly. Pumping milk, practicing for this, promotion for this show. And you just got to get it done. You yeah. don't have the luxury of time that we do now where you can sit on something for a week and think about doing it next Monday or something. <laughs> exactly. And and then you also realize that you don't really need that much time. It maybe sounds like a bit weird, but... You can really be much more focused when there's a lack of time and also find that freedom. I mean, in performance, we're always looking for a kind of sense of flow, right? We want to be in the moment with our colleagues. We want to connect with the audience. We want to just do musical, spontaneous things in the moment. And then when you're not focusing too much on the preparation, on like the conditions or whatever, then you kind of find that, that yeah. place of flow much more easily. Yeah, it sort of becomes a question of surviving almost. It's like, well, I've just got to get through it. <laughs> yeah, and then you kind of have fun with that. Because you also realize, you know, having a baby, and that's maybe even the most important thing, it's not really that important to all of the other things. You know, our identity really gets tied up in music making, I think, a lot of the time. As musicians, you know, if we have a good run of performances, if we feel good, then we think we succeed as people. And if we have a failed audition or if, we, or if we're looking at our empty calendars, you know, then suddenly we feel like we failed as human beings, which of course is ridiculous. Like it's the end of the world. I think it's so important that musicians be well-rounded, you know, and have other interests as well. Exactly. I mean, because this is a problem that, you know, a lot of musicians face and they're just like, my identity is what I play or, or I'm a singer or I'm whatever. You know, I remember at the start of the pandemic when everything got cancelled and then a lot of people were really lost because they just thought, well, if I can't do this one thing that I've done for my whole life, yeah, what can yeah. I do? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's really daunting thought. We've all had to answer that for ourselves over the last year. Yeah, and I've, I'm really grateful that I've had Ezra to kind of remind me of what really matters and that I don't need to see myself only as 
a singer or a musician that there's more to life. So how have you found it going into the pandemic? Because obviously you mentioned, you know, that really busy period just before in 2019 when you had yeah. Ezra and you were doing your 30 shows around the Netherlands. And then obviously the pandemic hit. How did you find working in that sort of environment now all of a sudden having this time? I mean, at first, of course, it was a huge shock. I was just I had just finished rehearsing an, an opera production and we were going to premiere it and then it it just got cancelled right before. I was looking at maybe the busiest year that I would have had so far and really things that I was looking forward to a lot. And we were going to go to the Göttingen Handel Festival with Handel Goes Tinder, which was a huge thing for us. And I, I really, at first, got pretty depressed, I have to say, <laughs> like many of us did. But yeah, then you kind of find a way to get on with it. And luckily, I had some really nice concerts over the summer. I was nominated for, for a prize, a Grachten Festival prize, which is like a, it's a festival for uh, young artists. And yeah, it's kind of a prize for people who have done cool things around the music uh, world. And so I got to perform with that in that festival a number of times, which is actually where I kind of premiered the CD program. And then from that, kind of the idea of recording a CD was born. So of course, I always want to do things and connect with audiences. And then after this festival was over, I... I thought, you know, I really need to do more with this music. And then I came up with the idea to record a CD and I started getting busy with that and finding uh, ways to uh, to make it happen. Yeah. And that was really rewarding. Nice to like have something to keep you busy during yeah. this time and, and something that you can really focus on that is your own contribution and have yeah. that luxury of time that we were talking about. When you mentioned before that you were into drawing and dancing in the living room and telling <laughs> stories. This is just how it's manifested, you know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Just telling stories. Yeah, I hadn't way. even thought of it that way. Yeah. And I think I, we're all storytellers, really, as musicians. And what's music about, really? It's about human experiences and emotions put into music. And that's what I want to uh, share with people. And what I think also can appeal to audiences outside of like really niche concert goers who are really adept at listening to classical music but I think it has an appeal that's much wider and we can reach that by connecting with the authentic stories that we want to tell yes authenticity that is a thing isn't it so you know as it ties in with what you were saying before about finding your own voice your own contribution people are more receptive to people who are authentic it comes across you know if you are yourself rather than someone posing as someone they think they should be which yeah a lot of people do (laughs) right and I think that's something that in music education of course standard or like kind of standardized education has to have a sort of set goals and things like that but then finding who you are as an artist and as a person really I mean that's the basis of of it all Mm -hmm. that's such an important part when I was studying I I kind of also thought that I had to be this like singer and then I went onto the stage and like whatever my private life was had nothing to do with that but then once I started kind of incorporating stories from my own life and from lives of other people and showing more of who I was as a person yeah. That's when things really started going for me. Yeah. You're telling your own story rather than just replicating stories of the past. Yeah, exactly. Because these are stories from the past, but they have to do with us today. And then hopefully through that authenticity, we can relate to other people and yeah. other people can 
be like, I get that. <laughs> exactly. I have to ask you really quickly. So you mentioned before dancing in your living room to the Spice Girls. <laughs> Which Spice Girl were you? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I always had to be Victoria when I was playing with my friends because I had brown hair or Mel C, which I also wasn't crazy about because I wasn't sporty at all. Um, but I really wanted to be Jerry because she was just the coolest. She was the coolest, wasn't she? She was sort of really like badass. Yeah. And I was devastated when she left. It wasn't the same after. No, it wasn't. And then wasn't it funny when they had the reunion a couple years ago and then it was posh that didn't come back? Yeah, I guess she was too busy with other things. But yeah. Got it. Yeah, I really wanted to go to that. Yeah, I I know someone that did go here in London. Oh, how was it? Amazing, I think. I mean, I don't really know how she got tickets. She also doesn't live in London. She lives in Sydney. So somehow very dedicatedly got tickets from the other side of the world. That's insane. That's a really dedicated fan right there. I mean, I had the watch and the mug and the like bedspread, but I never went to a concert. Yeah, no, I never went to a concert either. I think because I was still quite young, um, I wouldn't have gone unless there was some parental supervision and wasn't going to do that. <laughs> yeah, my, my parents weren't going to do that either. Yeah. <laughs> I was really sad about that. I really wanted to go, but alas. But we can, we can continue to dream. So one more question before we um, move on to the next section. So obviously we've talked so much about parenthood, motherhood, and life outside of music informing what we do as musicians. What advice would you give to new parents during this time? You know, maybe in terms of motivation or creativity. In the first place, I would say trust is the most important thing. Uh, trust in yourself that you can feel intuitively what's best. Not that we can all just know from our hearts what we have to do with our babies, but there are so many resources out there. And I think it's important to when like looking up advice about things related to babies and there's so much conflicting advice out there to read everything, but then also feel it through yourself and really observe your baby. And then I think you will know what's best and trust that difficult times will pass and that the sleepless nights will be over at some point. Yeah, I think that's really important, and trust that everything will be okay. Now it sounds like it's a really terrible experience in new parenthood. It's, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's amazing, and it's important to enjoy you know, the development of your baby. But I, what I would also say is that when I was pregnant and when I was like walking around with my stroller, people would say, oh, a baby, enjoy, enjoy. And I was like, I'm not enjoy. Like, what are you talking about? I'm so tired. I, I'm too tired to enjoy anything. But I felt like I kind of had to enjoy it because people were always telling me to enjoy. Um, but what I've since realized is that those people like probably think, oh, I wish I had enjoyed it more when my babies were little. And they forgot why they weren't able to because they were just so freaking tired. So I, I yeah, don't feel pressure to like enjoy it and just accept that there's a period of survival mode. And that you and your partner at some point will no longer want to strangle each other because you're just so tired and like fighting over who's allowed to sleep. Uh, that will pass and then you will start enjoying it more. That's really nice advice, trust, and also enjoy, but not in that annoying way that people are like, yeah. oh, enjoy, you know, that toxic positivity that goes nowhere. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's a really good uh, way to put it. It's like when people are like, everything will work out in the end, but not in a very informed way. Yeah, it won't happen by itself. I mean, you need to like do things. But yeah, it is good to trust that things will work out. But you might have to help them along a little bit in some ways. Yeah, you can't just sit and hope that it's going to go like that. You have to be active. Yeah, that's very true. So how much sleep are you getting at the moment? Actually, since the pandemic started, it got a lot better. 
I guess being more structured in our lives maybe helped. Yeah, we're sleeping pretty normally now, though Ezra has a bit of a cold, so he has been waking up a little bit recently, but I really can't complain. I'm getting a solid seven hours or something, so. Oh, that's pretty good compared to what I've heard with some of my peers. No sleep, no sleep. Yeah, the first year was awful. I mean, that it was really a disaster sleep-wise, <laughs> but thankfully we're in, in uh, better uh, times now as far as that's yeah. concerned. So as you may or may not know, my podcast, I have a segment called the Wildcard Question Round. Ooh. Ooh. And this is where you get the chance to choose what I ask you next based on three topics that I present you. Exciting. So your topics are travel destinations, essential listening, and another reality. Ooh. Another reality sounds intriguing. Oh. <laughs> If you weren't a musician, what would you be? Gosh, I think I would be... A um, I mean, yes, that's the answer. <laughs> uh, but if I have to also say something else, I think I would be a journalist. Yeah? I really like writing mm. and uh, telling stories. So, yeah, I think that would be very interesting. I um, know quite a few musicians that say that as well. And I find that really appealing too, because as we've mentioned before, you know, music making is a form of storytelling and communicating. And I suppose being a journalist is finding those stories and presenting them. Yeah, I really love doing that kind of thing. And I would at some point in my life want to write a book also. Yeah. But I will wait a little bit with that until I find some kind of idea and the will to push it through but that's something that I that I've always wanted to still do at some point but yeah I think being a journalist would be a really interesting uh, career choice it would really open up your perspectives I think Absolutely. I think that's what I yeah. find really interesting and especially you know even doing stuff like the podcast and listening to other people's stories it's really interesting just to hear things from another person's point of view yeah because did you come up with that during the pandemic or were you already doing it before yeah, I was doing it before, so I've done it. Oh, we're coming up to its second birthday, so it's oh, wow. a, a little bit younger than Ezra, I have to say. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so I started this podcast in June 2019. Okay. But I think that is a really important thing, isn't it? It's just listening to other people's stories. Yeah, and it's really there's so many interesting stories to tell, and everyone has their own kind of story. I used to work as a translator when I, while I was studying Wow. Uh, from Dutch to English and English to Dutch. So I was doing a lot of writing in that sense. But of course, I couldn't like come up with the things I wrote because I just had to <laughs> translate them. <laughs> yeah. but, but you could read them. Yes. Yeah. I mean, many of them were like software license agreements. So that wasn't the most fun. <laughs> like those things no one reads. Yeah, exactly. You download a thing that's like software license agreement and you're just like, oh, get to the end. I agree. I agree. But you have no idea. Yeah, I could have just written like poopy pants or whatever, but... I don't know. <laughs> and I bet if you had, like, no one would have noticed. No you one could have just, noticed. like, hidden it in there. Yeah. I mean, the translation agency would have probably noticed. <laughs> that must be quite interesting, actually, yeah. translation. Yeah, it is. I mean, I also got some interesting uh, things, uh, really random, like um, orthopedic footwear in Belgian, Flemish. So that was really complicated. Or instruction manuals for, like, forklift trucks that's so yeah. interesting and like you obviously have to read it so and and in yeah. a sense you have to you have to comprehend it so that it makes sense in both languages yeah exactly have you ever come across 
say like a forklift or one of these random things that you've read about during your translation work and being like, oh, I know that that's a... Yeah. Totally. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, totally. Whenever I see a forklift, I still think like, oh, and then they go like with the pallets in between, like, you know, in the the warehouse. And And this is why musicians need to have interests outside of music, because you never know. This information on forklifts might inform a future creative work. In a hypothetical situation, a pandemic hits and you need to find a different job, then, you know, knowing about things like that can be very useful. Plus, I'm also just waiting for you to write an opera about forklifts in Belgium. So It would be the most uh, thrilling piece that you have ever imagined. Smash it, yeah. Jerry Halliwell driving a forklift in Belgium. And I would play her, of course, with a red wig. Finally, you get to fulfill your dream of <laughs> <Yeah>. being Jerry. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much for your answer to the wildcard question round. I love hearing about what musicians do outside of music. So thanks so much. Hannah, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Where can people find out more about you and your work? So first of all, thank you as well so much, Davina. It's really a joy to talk to you. Uh, People can find more on uh, my website, hannahmalkin.com. Uh, and also, uh, I'm on Spotify. My single, one single from my album is out already, and the rest is coming out on May 7th. And at hanamalkin.bandcamp.com. Plus, on all the social media, of course, Hanamalkin Soprano. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That was soprano Hannah Malkin. Don't forget to check out the show notes for Hannah's details, including her aforementioned album, This Is Not A Lullaby. When we chatted, it wasn't released yet, but now it is. So go find her in Bandcamp and social media. I think she's even got a discount code for new followers. Mm. At the top of this episode, I spoke about the peace and women's suffrage activists, Anne Jarvis and Julia Ward Howe. Did you listen to it? Or did you skip through it all to get to the interview? I hope you listened to it. Anyway, it turns out Julia Ward Howe was a super interesting person, and you might even be aware of her work without realising. What? How so? You know the Battle Hymn of the Republic? You definitely will if you're American. The one that goes... She wrote the words. Like, the actual words, not the version that goes, Little Peter Rabbit had a fly upon his nose. (laughs) That came later, from someone else. The version that starts with, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Her words, set to the music, were published in The Atlantic, and the song became popular with the Union during the American Civil War. That elevated her to the public eye, so she used her platform to campaign for anti-slavery, pacifism, women's rights groups, suffragists, and the advancement of women in education. Sadly, a lot of her views came about through her troubling upbringing and marriage, but I think she's a prime example of a woman who didn't stay quiet and took action. I realise in one minute I can only scratch the surface of her life achievements, so I'll put a link in the show notes to her Wikipedia page where you can read a little bit more about her if you want. And that's it for today. Special thanks to Roz Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Big thanks to Hannah for being my guest this episode, and as always, thank you for listening. 
If you like what you hear, you can support the podcast by buying me a coffee on my coffee page. Link is in the show notes. Get in touch at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com or on the website asitcomes.com where you'll also find all previous episodes and transcripts of the podcast. You can also get in touch with me via Instagram and Facebook where I highly recommend you give me a follow and a like at As It Comes Pod. Remember to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to those who've already done so and thanks for continuing to spread the word. Chat to you soon and take good care. Bye. (music) 